part of that is because of this uniquely American system that we've inherited from William Halstead, who was who's considered the father of modern surgery and the modern surgical residency education. And so he was one of the founding fathers of Johns Hopkins Medical School, which is the first medical school in the country. And I read this fascinating article in the in one of the surgical journals about his life. It was a biography of his life. And he was a known cocaine addict because he used cocaine in part of his research for surgical anesthesia. He was also arguably a closeted homosexual and he didn't have much of a personal life all throughout his his career. You have a man who, he, he did eventually marry, who largely didn't have a personal life, who was addicted to cocaine and was very serious about surgery and surgical education. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Tracy Townsend, who is a doctor, and also very, very sharp in terms of mindfulness. I reached out to her on Twitter after she wrote wrote a tweet that blew my mind, which is often a way that I find most of my guests. And this interview did not disappoint. It was her first interview that she's ever done. But it was very, very interesting um, as that clip that you might have heard in the beginning of this made it out to be. If you want to hear the whole story, I'd listen to the whole the whole episode. And if you like this episode, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the major paid podcasting platforms were there. Uh, go ahead and subscribe if you want more episodes like this. And you can also find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III. Again, that's at Stuart Alsop III. Uh, my DMs are open. I'd love to hear how this content is affecting you, if at all, uh, why you're here, why you're listening. I'd just love to hear from you. So please reach out at Stuart Alsop III on Twitter. Have a great day and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Tracy Townsend. Uh, she is a surgeon focusing on connecting integrative medicine and orthopedic surgery. She's passionate, passionate about the intersection of health, technology, and education. Uh, and she consulted for Khan Academy during medical school. Uh, so welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah. And before we were just talking about how it's your goal to basically bring ancient healing techniques and adapt them or meld them or bring them together with modern techniques of healing. Uh, just at a very high level what is the main difference between ancient healing techniques and modern uh, medical uh, healing techniques? Sure. Um, the way that I kind of envision this is that uh, with modern medicine, there has largely been a separation between mind and body. And then even layered on top of that, you could go into discussions about the emotional body, the mental body and the spiritual or energetic body. And for the most part, modern medicine focuses almost exclusively on the physical body and having healing start at start and end with the physical body. But what I've noticed, at least in the course of my training, is that 
most, if not nearly all, disease and, and uh, other chronic conditions really arise from the emotional or mental body or even spiritual energetic bodies for people and then manifest physically. So to me, if we as a profession, as modern doctors are going to effectively help treat our patients, well, then we must acknowledge that uh, that the mental and the emotional bodies are just as important, if not more important than the physical body, and therefore integrate other types of healing modalities that have for the large part been ignored in the pursuit of, uh, of physical treatments for the physical body, really. Um, so I'm not, I find that there's a large, a big tension between the tradition, people who are more the traditional holistic camp of people and then the modern medicine uh, camp of people. And I think that both camps of people, there's um, truth and wisdom. And my goal would be to help integrate really both, both ways of, of approaching health and, and well-being. Seems like a big job, and it seems like you're going to get a lot of pushback. Have you already experienced pushback? Uh, for the most part, no, mo mainly because I haven't, well, I haven't been as vocal about this, I would say, with my colleagues at work. I'm, I'm pretty, I pretty much go try to blend in and, um, and, and, I don't know, uh, stay under the radar. When I'm with my friends and family, however, and I talk about this kind of stuff, it seems to resonate a lot across the board. I mean, this seems to, I mean, it makes sense to everybody. And when, especially with my husband's family, he has a large extended family. I probably get a phone call from them, you know, uh, once a week now, somebody in the family who has something. Um, and, uh, and when I, speak with them about all this stuff that's that's definitely how they like to approach their own health which is the, with this integrative um approach and so um i think that they're actually that that this would be most people of course you have really vocal minorities like anything in, in the world the vocal minorities get the most sort of um you know airplay and media time but i think that the vast majority of people fall somewhere in the middle and that, you know, if I'm going to be serving my patients um, the best way possible, well, then it'll be with this integrative approach. And, and I, I, if I do get pushback from it, I guess um, that's fair. I really like to stay skeptical, too, of, of incorporating any kind of new modalities into my own, um, my own arsenal for helping patients. Um, so I think it's a good thing. I think it's good to have that kind of debate going. Um, but yeah, I do see, I do see some more vocal people, uh, on Twitter and whatnot who are pretty adamantly against things. And, um, as I get older and further along in my training, I just become more confident about my, <laughs> my, my thinking in this and, and yeah, and get gaining allies moving forward too. And this is just such a difficult thing that I've faced all the time is the difference between my subjective understanding of what's happening to me and then the objective standpoint, which I read about and which I believe science is kind of trying to figure out is like this objective thing from without the subjective bias or without the subjective um, viewpoint. Is there a truth outside of that? 
and it is difficult in my life to figure it out because I find these things that work, but then I, I ask myself, you know, about the placebo effect and the placebo effect is, a, seems like it's a big one. Um, and so, you know, am I just convincing myself that these things are working, but then what's wrong with that if they are working? And if I am convincing myself that they're working, what's, what's the issue there? Um, so I don't know, it's a big tension that I face within my, within my everyday as well, particularly as the issues that I've gotten have been at odds with the medical practitioners who prescribed them. And so uh, like it, it, you know, I, I trust a lot of medical, you know, medical science. And if I have a, if I, you know, get in an accident tomorrow, then I'm going to be very, very happy that, a, that an ambulance will take me to a hospital and, um, and that I'll be put in that circumstance. But for the things that I'm dealing with chronically, it's just, nobody has an answer. <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> yeah. yeah. For sure. I think, yeah, modern medicine is excellent at really acute conditions. I mean, that's where most of the strides have been made within the last century is like incredible, literally miracles. If we, you know, a hundred or, you know, 500 years ago, what we are doing with modern medicine would have been considered a miracle and magical. Um, so absolutely, if you got into a car accident and broke your femur, well, then you should have an intramedullary nail placed in your femur and you can walk the next day and it'll help prevent you from getting, being bed bound and getting blood clots and then getting a pneumonia and potentially dying. And this happens all the time, still all over the world. Um, and so we should, always be grateful for what modern medicine has been able to do for us. But like you said, anytime we step out of the acute setting into anything subacute or chronic, um, that's when all these other factors start to come into play. And, and I'm really particularly interested in the placebo effect as well and feel like it is a huge blind spot within the, the modern medical field that we don't you know, leverage this effect. It's, it really is the power of positive mm. thinking. And there's even this concept of the nocebo, which is the power of negative thinking and how the impact of your thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, how this impacts your healing process. And we see this every day and, 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 it's, and, and we see it play out as well when we look at the social determinants of health. Um, basically people's education levels and their socioeconomic status and uh, their religious beliefs. Um, we see how all these things impact health outcomes and we have really robust studies to demonstrate all of this. Um, and yet we are still kind of slow on, <laughs> um, on adapting our treatments to uh, reflect this, this knowledge. And then you, for you personally, did you start out medical school with an understanding of these ancient practices or did you, is that something you developed on the way? It was something I totally developed on the way really through my own direct experience and out of a need for myself. Um, I, I, one, I was generally a healthy child. I became really ill when I was about eight years old. I had pneumonia and what was likely an empyema or a collection of, of pus in my lung. And um, I was hospitalized for a few weeks. That was my first real encounter with uh, the medical system. And it was at a children's hospital and it was largely very positive. It was, it was wonderful. And I think that's what first sparked my curiosity in medicine. Mm. And I was always, you know, uh, I always liked school and science and that kind of thing and just wanted to help people. That's 
And then after I got sick and was exposed to the hospital and doctors and nurses, I, um, that's when I kind of started down the path of thinking, oh, maybe I would like to become a doctor. And it, this was, of course, highly encouraged by my parents and everyone around me um, as a noble pursuit. And so, um, uh, and then I was, you know, you know, blessed with really good health until until I got into residency, really. So I got all the way through the stresses of being a, a pre-med student in college and, and, and through medical school. And when I look back at some of the things that I put my body through and that kind of thing, I... I I wish I could go back and do it differently because I know, you know undoubtedly did some some damage during that process. But um, yeah, it wasn't really until I was in my second year of residency and taking, you know, thirty hour call at the hospital uh, multiple days a week that I really started to suffer um, mentally and emotionally, and it was affecting all areas of my life, really. And I think um, there are a lot of uh, residents and doctors who can empathize with this process. And um, I had to find ways of coping. Otherwise, I would have just become completely burnt out and disillusioned and would have had to maybe, I mean, I considered at one point, I mean, I considered at multiple points quitting along the way. I mean, I, I don't think I ever really seriously entertained it just because I couldn't leave my, co my comrades, my co-residents. Um, but um, yeah, if it weren't for the support um, that I had from my loved ones, and then also um, the, the process of incorporating these practices into my own life, I would have never have, have survived, not only survived, but I feel like I've thrived really since that. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about it. Uh, so that brings up a couple of questions. Let me see if I'll remember them all. But um, the first, it reminds me of just like any time you enter any sort of social group, there are certain things that the social group requires of you in order to do the things that uh, do that. And, uh, you know, it's in the military, it's in the high school, it's in fraternities and it's all these other things. And it sounds like the residency is that for doctors and that they, that it's like that. And you said it yourself, you strong, you grew very close to the other people who were going through it. Um, uh, and then, so the question is, is it possible? Do you think you would be as good of a surgeon as you are right now, if they had done it in a way that wouldn't have driven you into those practices that ended up helping you? I think about this a lot. I think about this a lot. In fact, um, <laughs> the only time I've ever been blocked by a person on Twitter was actually <laughs> over this exact topic. Um, there's a lot of discussion right now in sort of uh, the medical world, and I see it a lot on sort of on med Twitter um, about the nature of um, physician education in this country. And it's pretty uniquely American hmm. um, with our, you know, now we have the 80 hour work week. Um, but, it, you know, in Europe, the training is completely different and the, you know, the rest of the world. Um, it's not like it is in America. And part hmm. of that is because of this uniquely American system that we've inherited from hmm. uh, William Halstead, who was, who's considered the father of modern surgery and the modern surgical residency education. And so he was one of the founding fathers of Johns Hopkins Medical School, um, which is the first medical school in the country. And um, he, he 
I read this fascinating article in the um, in one of the surgical journals about his life. It was a biography of his life, and he um, he is he is a no he was a known um, cocaine addict because he used cocaine in part of his research for surgical anesthesia, and um, he was also arguably a closeted homosexual, and he didn't have much of a personal life all throughout um, his, his career. And so he, you have a man who, who he, he did eventually marry, but um, you know, who, who largely didn't have a personal life, who was addicted to cocaine <laughs> and was very serious about surgery and surgical education. So um, it's, you know, he would go on these cocaine penders for three days at a time and basically told all of the surgical residents who were with him, like, are you tough enough to hang with me, <laughs> basically. And that mentality is... I mean, it's just, it's, you have to laugh about it now because that's exactly the mentality that still up until very recently was what was imposed on surgery residents in this country. Um, and it really, I would say, um, just really recently within the last maybe 10, 15, 20 years where people are starting to question whether that is the right way to go about training surgeons um, and other and other physicians in general in this country, um, there are there is a large contingent of people. I mean, namely older, you know, the older generations, because this was the system that they were brought up in, and a lot of them have sacrificed their personal lives in order to be the doctors that they became, um, who feel. I don't know if it's through a process of cognitive dissonance or what, but you know, when you sacrifice so much of your personal life for a career, um, you, you know, you, you, you kind of go through this narrative of like, Oh, well, I became the person I was because I am because of that training. And if it weren't for that training, well, then I never would have become the surgeon that I became. And um, I do think that there is some, definitely some, I mean, an enormous benefit to, this concept of you stress or being stressed under more controlled conditions where you have supervising physicians on backup and that it's like, it's kind of like the benefits of it is similar. I think to Navy SEAL training where they put their, the Navy SEAL candidates through hell week in order to really stress them. And so that you get the most mentally robust you know, soldiers so that when they're out in the, you know, thick of war that they're going to be able to perform. And a lot of surgery training is that same mentality where you, it's very militaristic. I mean, and it's very hierarchical and, um, and it's this sort of hazing process, but hazing for your own benefit. So that when you're finally uh, performing surgery on your own, you can handle it. But, um, so yes, there, but I, I do think there's definitely room for, for improvement. Um, and, and it's not, it's not like we're going to go to, you know, 40 hour work week where no one ever has to be stressed <laughs> out or anything like that. Like it, I, I doubt we'll ever get there, but, um, I do think that there are some real concrete, uh, measures that can be put into place to really help, help residents not have to give up so much of themselves in the process. Um, this is really interesting. So there's a couple points and a, couple, a lot of questions. I just came up with that from that. 
uh, one of the most the most interesting ones is how did cocaine influence the founding of the U.S. medical education system, which is a really interesting question, which you already answered. But um, it kind of reminds me that goes into this kind of alternative or ancient healing practices because it is my impression I might be wrong on this, but it's my impression that a shaman in the Amazon uses plant medicines in order to communicate with those plants. And essentially once you ingest that medicine, you are basically in communication with that plant. And so it's really ironic that cocaine uh, from the cocoa plant, which is from where I am right now in Colombia, made its way to the US medical system and then influenced the US medical system in, in that way. It's really is a really interesting thing that I want to research more of. And then there's another thing you mentioned about the cross-cultural differences between medical education. So uh, it, in other places, it, it doesn't work like this, but in the United States, it does work with this kind of more medical uh, military kind of training, but I imagine the outcomes are pretty similar. So that would suggest that there is a lot more room for this kind of a less stressful environment for learning this stuff. But that brought up the question for me, if I were to have the choice between a surgeon who had undergone this really, really intense process or somebody who hadn't, the, I, I, I'd probably want to go with the person who hasn't, has experienced this really intense uh, training, but I don't know whether that narrative actually makes sense or whether that actually is affected in the outcomes. Have you, do you know anything about that? Um, yeah, I mean, as far as I know, I mean, if you were to, it, it's so hard to compare health outcomes, I think, across nations because uh, it's it's really like comparing apples and oranges and the United States is unique in its population. Um, and so a lot of the times when we see comparisons between the American healthcare system and, you know, Scandinavian healthcare systems or, you know, Japan or Singapore or other uh, uh developed countries, um, I think it's kind of an unfair comparison. Um, uh, but I mean, it, it definitely would suggest that there are probably diminishing margins, mm -hmm. um, basically, when it comes to to putting residents through through a stressful educational process. Mm -hmm. um, and even then, I think that certain specialties tend to be more stressful than others, in which case it is 100% necessary to go through that process while you're in training, um, but maybe other specialties not as much. I think in the end, it, it at least how the, the system, the educational system is getting better, um, but where it was, you know, even just 20 years ago, I would say, it was a net negative in terms of, um, because I think at the end of the day, physicians end up less healthy going through this process. They develop an unhealthy relationship with work. You know, workaholism is <laughs> rampant. Um, this idea that you wear stress as the badge of honor, that you become almost like a martyr in the process of, you know, sacrificing your personal life in order to be um, a physician to serve your patients better. I think all of these are, are false narratives that, mm -hmm. uh, that doctors have clung on to and are clinging on to, and that it ultimately harms patients in the end, because we would never want our own patients to be proceeding 
living their life in this way. I mean, we know that stress is probably the one common denominator for every chronic disease process. Mm. So why are we as physicians embracing <laughs> stress the way that we are when we, we, this would not be the prescription that we would give to our patients. So, um, and, and doctors are, I mean, it's well known that, that doctors are not necessarily well contingent within the population. Um, you know, chronic doctors are not are no more immune to chronic disease than, than everyone else in America. So, and, and the, the divorce rates and the suicide rates are extraordinarily high for, for professionals. So, so something, something is, is wrong here. Something needs to change. Um, but um, I think, I think you can, I think there are ways to, to test somebody and to examine how competent they are and how good of a physician they are and certain they are without uh, this, this current way of, of moving, moving people through residency. Um, in fact, I would say for the most part, it's, it's not really correlated, you know, oh, okay, you're able to suffer through the rigors of residency, therefore you are a good surgeon. I don't think that there's like a whole lot of correlation there. I think there's other ways to assess, to assess people. And when I'm looking for a surgeon, I, I look for very different things than, than that. Mm. So let's go into how you are doing this uh, concretely in terms of bringing this integrative medicine approach. When you see your clients, are you like, what is the relate? When does surgery come into the discussion? Uh, so, when I, whenever I see a patient, first of all, the I'm still in residency right now, so hmm. I'm a, I'm a chief resident at a count, Los Angeles County Hospital right now. So, which is a Medicaid safety net hospital. So, hmm. I really see the the patients that. Um, that are all on Medicaid here in Los Angeles. So it is a very special population that has its own unique challenges, I would say. Um, and I don't have the time, the luxury of time that I would want with my patients. I will for sure be making sure that I have uh, in the, going on in the future. Um, but I don't have the luxury of time to really get to know my patients the way I would really like to get to know them. Um, but my general approach, which I would say is most most doctors or the most orthopedic surgeons approach is to exhaust all conservative measures um, before ever moving on to the idea of surgery. So, so in my mind, surgery is always, almost always a last resort, at least for most orthopedic problems, which are what we call elective in nature, which are quality of life enhancing. Um, so in, in, luckily in orthopedic surgery, we don't deal too much with life and death, except when it, except in the realm of trauma. So uh, if someone's in a horrible accident, for example, yeah, we, we definitely can intervene in a way that can save someone's life. Um, but outside of that scenario, the vast majority of orthopedics is quality of life enhancing. And in that case, in that, um, in, in those cases, the, the approach is, you know, surgery as a last resort. Um, because surgery is an amazing technology. It's, it's wonderful. And, and when I see a patient, I, I generally think, okay, do you meet 
you know, X, Y, Z indications for an in surgical intervention. If you do not meet one of these really strict indications, well, then I don't want to do surgery for you because the likelihood that surgery is going to help you is very low. And surgery is not a benign intervention. It's, you know, there are all sorts of risks that come with anesthesia, general anesthesia, regional anesthesia, and, um, and then you have the entire healing process also afterwards that has nothing really ultimately to do with me. It has to do with your immune system and the, the underlying biology. So, so yeah, I really, I really try to help people help people to understand why they're having the problem that they're having. I try to encourage them to look into every other possible way of treating it without surgery. And then, and then there are very certain specific instances where we have wonderful surgeries for very specific problems. And in that case, I try to help people become more comfortable with the idea of surgery. If I really do think that um, surgery would be beneficial for them. There are a lot of people I mean, there are all sorts of different patients who come into my door. There are the people who think surgery is the end all, you know, the cure all that can, that's a miracle. And why don't you just do surgery on your right away? And then there are the people who want to avoid surgery at all costs, even if it would significantly, you know, even if they have end stage arthritis with bone on bone, mm. um, you know, pain. And we have a, you know, a total hip replacement is one of the best surgeries we have in all of modern medicine in terms of the outcomes. And we really are able to change people's lives with, with surgeries like that. So in that case, I tried to help uh, educate patients on how to think about it. And that's, that's one thing that I really love doing the most is, is helping to take someone who has, who's going from basically a level zero in understanding of a procedure and bringing them up as close to my level of understanding as possible. And so an orthopedic surgeon focuses mostly on the connective tissue. Is that correct? Bones, joints, other things like that, other parts of connective tissue? Yeah, all musculoskeletal. So bones, muscles, tendons, ligaments. Uh, we all nerve, nerve as well. Mm. Um, so, and then everything in um, from the spine and then the, the forelimbs, basically head down. But mm. we, nothing in the abdomen or thorax. Mm. Interesting. And then, so do you have an accurate mental model of all of the nerves? So if you're working on somebody's leg, do you have an accurate mental model of which nerve you're going to find where and like how to, how to move around them and not, not cut them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's basically all what my training is, which is anatomy, anatomy, anatomy. Um, they say that every case is about an artery and a nerve. So even though I might be doing a bony procedure, I am always cognizant of whatever, uh, you know, whatever major artery, major vein or major nerve is running through my surgical field and um, taking great, you know, care to avoid any sort of injury. Um, and I would say, again, because orthopedic surgery is mostly elective for the most part, um, we have a really low tolerance for complications because this is something that somebody elected to do. And so to, to take someone who's looking to, to you to make them better, and then you not only did you not make them better, but you made them worse, that would be just inexcusable. So yeah, I definitely have a mental model of, yeah, the entire nervous, the, the major, the major cutaneous and motor nerves all throughout. And then when you do your own meditation practice, does that understanding of anatomy then seep back into your own body? And like, do you have visualizations of 
for example, the nerves running through your body as you study them? Yes, yes. Um, I definitely, for example, when I go to a yoga class, it's always really fun for me <laughs> to have an instructor um, point out certain things that and have a different, it's like a different facet of looking at the same thing. Um, and and uh, yeah, I think about that all the time. Like, for example, um, yeah, I was in a yoga class recently where the instructor was focusing on the sacroiliac joints. And it's like, oh, yeah, like, it's, I know the sacroiliac joints really well. Although I look at them from a very different perspective in terms of um, stability of the pelvis. And huh. so the surgeries we do, for example, are if someone has a pelvic ring injury, we'll put, we'll put screws through the sacroiliac joints. Um, I would say too, that in my own explorations of my own physical body, I've, it has changed the way that I see the way that I view what I do to other people in the surgeries that I do. Um, and the way that I'm altering, you know, biomechanics or whatnot, um, and altering the tissues. Um, and, uh, and and I also try to have more deference to the subjective experience that a patient has whenever they've, um, especially especially postoperatively, if they are going through something. I think a lot of times as doctors, we, we, we can be dismissive of somebody's experience if it doesn't really fit within our narrow framework of what's expected after surgery or what's considered to be normal. And so, um, uh, yeah, just being more sensitive to that. I think the greater sensitivity I have for myself and my own experience, the more I can extend that out to my patients. Mm. So how much have we been learning about what these uh, subjective or more uh, alternative healing practices are doing in terms of the immune system? And like, what is the relationship between the immune system and damage to the joints or damage to the connective tissue? Um, what, and then how do these more alternative treatments actually affect that? If at all. So, I mean, I think it has, they have everything to do with each other in terms of, you know, psycho neuro immuno, um, approach like expressions of, of disease i think that you can take there's a saying that we have within orthopedics don't treat the x-ray treat the patient because a lot of times someone can have a physical manifestation of of a disease process let's, let's just take osteoarthritis for an ex, as an example which is um and then you have rheumatoid arthritis kind of going along as the sister to that and um if you have, we'll take osteoarthritis, which is largely understood to be a mechanical problem. So a mechanical alignment or problem, problem. And then someone will go through their whole lives and, you know, abnormally wear on their joints. And you can take the same 60 year old person. You can take a 60 year old person who has a particular x-ray where it looks like pretty severe osteoarthritis and yet clinically, so when you see them in the clinic, they don't look all that bad. They're functioning, they're pretty high functioning. And they, when you ask them what kind of pain they have, they're like, oh, it bothers me, but you know, I deal with it. I, I still exercise and work and do all the things that I love to do and it doesn't really hold me back that much. But you'll find that those people tend to have you know, really good support systems and they don't have a lot of the other 
um, maybe psychological stressors that say another person with the exact same x-ray may have. And that person is debilitated from their, their disease process. And I think it's largely because they haven't had the other mechanisms in place to help them adapt um, in a healthy way. So that's one example of just how, um, you know, maybe, and I, I think a lot of, so Dr. Gabor Mate is one of my heroes and he, um, he has sort of really pioneered this idea about um, disease, a lot of disease being uh, at the root of, the, of chronic disease, childhood traumas, inter, in, intergenerational traumas being at the root of all this. And I, I feel like I have seen that in my own clinic, especially with my, the population that we have here in sort of inner city Los Angeles. Uh, I see this, I just observe this on my own. Um, and, and then let's take, for example, let's take rheumatoid arthritis now, which is an autoimmune condition um, that largely affects women more than men. And we don't understand why. Uh, and there's a lot of theories, um, but I, I do tend to see that um, it seems to be a disease process that is tied to previous experiences in life that then, um, you know, they say genetics is basically loading the gun and then your environment and your, and your experiences are what fires the gun of disease. And I, I feel like that's what I see myself in rheumatoid arthritis and these other autoimmune conditions. Um, and, and that the, I think that unfortunately these patients, at least in my hospital, they're not really exposed to the different healing modalities I think are particularly well suited to, um, to helping people process their, the previous experiences, traumatic experiences in their life or the stories that they've inherited. Um, and that can that can really kind of catalyze a transformational mm -hmm. healing process for them um and that's kind of what i envision moving forward for the health system as a, as a whole that as we become more aware of these phenomena which are not at all mainstream right now in in sort of modern western allopathic medicine um that as we become more aware of them then then we will hopefully see a transformation um, within our, our treatments. Mm. But right now, you know, so much of, of the healthcare system is about, you know, what gets reimbursed. And, mm. um, and that's, I mean, that could be a whole other discussion really about the healthcare system and, and, and incentives and, and, and a lot of misalignment in that area. Well, and that's where I was going to go to, because essentially looking at my own life, looking at my own chronic health issues, looking at how a lot of them were derived from really difficult childhood experiences. Um, and just like all of the, the three things that I say would be the most helpful for me are counseling, uh, massage and dance. Like those are the three things that have allowed me to move the energy, move the stuck kind of experiences that I have in my body and release them finally. And it's like hours. Like I've been spending a lot, like particularly the last four or five years, it's like not, not hours, like thousands of hours of, of, of essentially going deep into it. And because and when you're a child, you don't really know better. And you kind of just like make these packs with yourself to not really look at it or to kind of like 
lock away the key because it was so difficult in those experiences and you just kind of like wall it off and section it off and then as adults we come back and look at it and like the it's just so difficult um and then for somebody who doesn't have any of the resources it's like how do you how do you even begin to unravel that because when you're first starting to unravel it it's like you can't even look at that because that is represents such a big monster under the bed uh that you just like you don't look at it and there's like and it's just really really difficult and i don't know how we do that because one of my yoga teachers talks about the the spectrum between uh healing between a transactional healing versus transformational healing and it's the spectrum so this podcast would be an example of a transactional thing somebody listens to it and and they they you know they make a little tidbit that makes them think about something differently but when you're one-on-one with someone uh, that's a transformational experience and that's like going to radically change the way that you look at things and they can bring up something you know when you're in communication with somebody and they bring something up it's like it's really difficult to just like ignore that thing entirely um, although some people can do it but and that's that spectrum between transactional and transformational uh, and the things that i have found that work the best in terms of that transformation in terms of chronic treatments, all of them are not, are not reimbursed by, by insurance. Like I can't, I can't get somebody to reimburse them for me. And then what I see from you is you're seeing a whole bunch of people every day and you can't give them the type of time or the transformational experience. And then they don't really have the other options to do transformational experiences. So it's, it seems really complicated. Yes, it's, it's very complicated. It's been, and it, that's been sort of another thing that I've had to find a healthy way of processing kind of throughout this whole experience, because it has been very morally distressing for me to see these patients like come through my door who are struggling on a, an emotional and mental and a spiritual level and, um, and really not able to get a handle on even what we you and I would consider the basics which are you know like just basic nutrition and basic you know sleep hygiene and um, basic emotional intelligence and that kind of thing and um, I I so see where these people can be helped and yet I'm and I want to help them but then there's this giant intermediary of a healthcare system that almost prevents me from being able to do that. And what's even more frustrating is that there are a tremendous amount of resources being spent here. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money being exchanged and moved around in the system. Um, For the most part, I would say most doctors don't see it. It's actually between insurance companies and hospital systems um, and, and equipment and device companies. So, so it is really distressing. I think that, um, for the most, even for somebody who like you and I, who are privileged enough to have the resources and the wherewithal to explore these kinds of things on our own and pay out of pocket for them. Um, even then it's still a really difficult process to move through all of it, because as you said, it's very time intensive. And not only that, it's very challenging. It's very challenging. Um, and, and, um, and, you know, finding the right support system and community, um, and all of that um, is already hard enough. And then, and then now if we want to extend that to the most marginalized of people um, that we are, that are also a part of our community that we care about, that we want to help out. Um, I, I, <laughs> I am, I would say that this is the thing that keeps me up at night is really trying to find a way um, where, where everybody can have access to these kinds of practices. I think this is where, 
leveraging technology yeah. is really what, where it gets exciting because um, and why um, I was so excited to do my work with Khan Academy um, a few years ago was because it's it's actually a well, it's only with technology that you're able to really scale some of this process. Although I think I mean healing really is at the end of the day, I think a solo venture, <laughs> like you need people to support, to help, I mean, to teach you and to support you through the process. And I think there will never be a replacement for one-on-one, um, and even small group, um, healing sessions. Um, but I also think that it, you know, every individual's healing journey is going to look so different. Certain practices that work for you and me might not work for other people and vice versa. And really my goal is just to help people um, become curious about the process and, uh, and also to understand how it is the most important thing you can do for yourself to uh, be really proactive about uh, incorporating daily practices into your life in order to um, not just be healthy because be, being healthy for its own sake is, is mm. one, and, uh, is one thing, but really we want to be healthy so that we can go out and do all the other things that we want to do to, um, to explore the world, to be creative, to contribute to society, to find meaning in our lives. Um, and, and so it's, it's something that I think that, will be incumbent upon individual people to get curious about and, and to prioritize. Um, and I think, and I think it is possible even in a relatively resource poor situation. Well, I'd love, I'd love to have a conversation about practically what technology looks like in terms of healing. Cause I've, I've talked about this a lot, you know, does, can technology help people heal at scale? Um, so one of the benefits of technology is that it lowers the cost. So, you know, it, it lowers the cost to access to a lot of different things. So there, you know, Facebook traditionally things that Facebook provide would have cost money, but now they're free. For example, I can go on a group, uh, Facebook group about, um, I'll just throw it out there, the Iboga, which is this, you know, psychedelic plant that's used to treat addiction and stuff like that. And I can find relatively good information on that, that I couldn't find anywhere else. Um, all of it for free. Well, all of it, uh, basically, uh, not for free because I'm, I'm seeing advertisements, so somebody's paying for it. But um, and then, so healing. What does healing look like when it mixes with technology? Because one of the, my previous guests a long time ago, Michelle Singh, talked about how a lot of human beings judge other human beings, and that judgment creates a vertical relationship instead of a horizontal relationship. And I believe that most healing relationships happen in the space of horizontal relationships where you look at the other person as a natural extension of life that shares that same equality basically in, in, in awareness and being. Um, and when you judge someone, it creates a, a distance between them and you, you, you become the judger and you say good or bad and everything like that, which is ridiculous. So, and technology doesn't judge. So if, 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 well, and maybe that's not true because maybe we, we put our biases into technology as well. So we might end up creating a technology that does in fact judge. Um, but you know, what does it look like? Does does is technology just making the surrounding stuff around healing easier to deal with in terms of payments and all that other stuff? Or can can technology actually make? Can we create some sort of system that actually heals on its own? Um, you know, and, and heals without the presence of another human being. You kind of already talked about that, but yeah, I mean. <laughs> 
It, it is fun to think about, I mean, what, like the different ways you can incorporate technology into the healing process. For the most part, when I see technology and, and the, at what I see at the intersection of health and technology right now is not what mm, personally really excites me uh, in terms of, um, you know, big data and, you know, extra precision medicine and more biomarkers mm-hmm. and biohacking and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, I think it's really cool. It's awesome. I mean, I myself like to dabble in all that kind of thing. But in, if we're really going to look at how we heal the planet and how we heal the people who most need it, um, I don't I don't think it looks like all of that. I think it looks it looks uh, pretty different. I think I mean, going back to your, you know, example of uh, learning about Iboga via a Facebook group. I think that is exactly what it looks like. I think it looks very grassroots. Um, and that I, and I couldn't agree more that in the therapeutic relationship, it is a, a co-creation of the healing story together mm-hmm. and, and going on that journey side by side. And, um, I, and, and the minute there is this sort of, uh, imbalance, um, where I'm teaching you and you're not teaching me, then there's not that symbiotic exchange. And then we're really not leveraging the therapeutic relationship at all at that point. So, um, I think what the internet does is one, it exposes it. it, It's just like pure exposure to knowledge, like unlike ever before and information so that if people want to educate themselves and not have an intermediary of a a so-called expert, then they can do that. And that's, I think it's amazing that we have that for the first time ever in human history. So if something isn't working for you, you know, if you're addicted to opioids and the medical establishment is basically telling you to take another pharmaceutical drug like methadone or um, something else in lieu of that, well, that doesn't really make sense to me. And and the way that the uh, modern medicine treats addiction doesn't really resonate with me at all. And I want to instead look at an alternative treatment through uh, with Evoga and that makes sense to me and my story and my narrative and my experience of the world. Um, people can do that now and it's incredible. Um, and you can travel to other places, um, uh, in order to, um, have that kind of experience. And, um, and that wasn't ever possible before. So one is just, yeah, the, the exposure and the sheer volume of knowledge and information is incredible. But also I think being able to connect with other people and who are going to help you execute that, um, that healing journey is, you know, people who are aligned philosophically, um, or spiritually with you, people who are aligned, um, uh, in, in terms of your desired approach for how you want to heal, finding those practitioners wasn't, it was almost impossible before without the internet internet. And now you're able to do that. You're able to find people. If you're having trouble with your dreams, there are dream workers. If you want to, um, you know, if you, you want to do a virtual Reiki, you know, session, you can do that now. So that's really cool. I think there, um, there's an opportunity for a large platform for connecting you know, patients with practitioners, um, that I haven't really seen emerge yet, but that there's potential for that in the future. Um, and, uh, and I think as more and more people kind of turn away from conventional medicine to, and are willing to spend the money in order to get the kind of care that they desire, which I, we're just increasingly seeing it with this like 
direct primary care movement and whatnot and with parsley health and forward health and all that uh, with people wanting to spend their own money um, and just totally bypass the whole employer-based insurance model um, that we'll start to see more innovation in that space. Mm. I can give a practical example of, of what you just described of the being able to find a provider that help, that fits with what I was, what my goals are. I, w- I had this Invisalign treatment done by a dentist who was did it for cosmetic reasons. And I had my own, my own involvement in choosing that as well. Um, but then in order to fix what happened, I ended up going on a Reddit thread. Um, and then I, uh, and this is actually, I stopped the treatment once I went on that Reddit thread that told me like Invisalign has these, these other issues, particularly if you have an edge case. So I saw that on Reddit and then I stopped the treatment and then basically just stopped it totally and, and, and kind of let my teeth go back to the way they were going, but it didn't really resolve the issue that the Invisalign had started in the first place, which was a misalignment in the bite. And then I was like a year and a half later, I was like, but I'm still in a lot of pain. What do I do? Uh, and then, so I found that original Reddit thread and then that changed my mind in the first time. And then I found a textbook in that Reddit thread that was the functional occlusion, uh, and smile design or something like that was the title of the textbook. And then ended up reading the textbook. Um, and cause I had to educate myself so much because nobody could tell me what was going on. Um, and then ended up, reading that textbook and then went on the person who wrote that textbook's website and they came up with a, um, a list of providers who had gone through their training uh, and then they ended up being in Stockton. So I had to drive from San Francisco to Stockton on my motorcycle and then, and then ended up going camping in the woods afterwards. And then, uh, so I, I went on Friday, got the impressions done. He took the impressions, figured out what was going on. I went into the woods and then came back on Monday and then he shaved parts of my teeth off so that they would fit together and so that the bite would actually work together. And it was really interesting because I don't think this guy is into alternative medicine, but he, it felt like I had a massage therapist using the tools of modern dentistry, taking off parts of my teeth. And it felt like he, he, he just, it felt like he was like a, um, like a, a healing practitioner using the tools of modern medicine in order to heal me, as opposed mm. to the guy who gave me the cosmetic thing, who was just like a pull full up, like, uh, you know, not no sense of this other component that we've been talking about for this last week. And so that's an example. And that, that all happened pretty much online, Reddit and kind of like educating myself and everything like that. And it's really interesting because it's now solved the issue. And, and now I'm like headed back towards the health that I had like five or six years ago. Um, and, I don't see a way in which the modern medical system would have been able to get me to the same place um, uh, that, that it seemed to be required of me that I do take educate myself and that I do. And that's the crazy thing. People are now able to go into this world wide web of just like all the information's out there. And yes, we need to train ourselves to figure out what information is of better quality than the other ones. But if you can do that, then you've got this whole world open to you of, of ways that you can educate yourself, which is really cool. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and I think you make a really good point there with, you have to be careful because there is a lot of bad information on the internet. And I think to me, that is really what a doctor is there for is if you can find the right doctor who is aligned with your uh, worldview and your health philosophy, then really, I feel like my role is to take everything that I've learned and apply it into guiding you for your particular uh, 
your particular issue. And so how can you leverage my brain with my frameworks of mm. thinking and, and then uh, apply that to your particular problem? Um, and so it's really like a, a coming together, a joining of the minds, because I don't know your health problem like you do. You live that experience. And at the same time, like I have years of medical training and scientific uh, understandings of things. And so how can we then combine that together to then find the particular uh, person or treatment that will actually help you? Mm. Um, and so in that way, uh, you know, I feel like doctors are um, more of like, like a sage or a guide, um, and, and not always, um, the person who's doling out the definitive treatment. Um, I, I'd like to really just be like an ally for you to help, help you move, move through the, the healing process, um, and, and help you avoid also any sort of, you know, misguided information out there. I mean, I, I do believe that, Every most, the vast majority of people are hoping to help you with information that they're putting out on the internet, but at the same time, like having the understanding of how to apply things to your particular case um, is really important as well. Mm. Um, yeah, to, but I, I totally, I think that's, that's really exciting too, that that kind of thing would not have been possible, um, you know, if it weren't for the internet. Interesting. Well, this has been really cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people find more about you and more about the work that you're doing? Um, so I'm on Twitter as uh, I think Trace, I have to look at, oh my gosh, my Twitter handle. Um, I just got married not that long ago. And so um, I did, I changed it to, okay, Tracy K. Townsend. I couldn't remember if it was Tracy Townsend or Tracy K. Townsend. So I'm at uh, Tracy K. Townsend on Twitter. And then I am putting together um, my own personal website, which will be kind of my home base for anybody who wants to reach out to me. Um, I will have another year of fellowship to go and then I'll be establishing practice likely here in the Los Angeles area. So um, if anybody's in, in Southern California too, they can um, reach out to me. I'd love to talk. Cool. Thank you, Tracy. All right. Thanks, Stuart. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this episode with Tracy. Uh, please go ahead and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and subscribe. Uh, and if you really liked it, please leave it a review. As always, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. My DMs are open. Would love to hear from you. And I'm releasing episodes every day, Monday through Friday, for the month of January. I'll probably slow down a little bit. I'm going to schedule a bunch. I'm going on retreat. Uh, probably for the month of February, I'm going to... Um, first do a 10-day meditation retreat at Hridaya Meditation Center in, in Mexico, where I've been before many times, very powerful silent day meditation retreat. But in, uh, com in comparison to Vipassana, which is the most famous, has the largest brand of meditation, uh, Vipassana, I've never done a Vipassana in the Goenka style. Uh, I've done Vipassana in the Thais Forest Monk tradition style. Uh, Vipassana is not something that Goenka created. It's actually something that is in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. Um, but I, um, uh, but in contrast to them, what the Vipassana does, which is like no body movement, no nothing. Hridaya is pretty interesting because they do about a, a, an hour of yoga a day. And if I'm meditating all day, I don't want to just sit there. I want to actually experience, I want it like, it's important to move your body. Um, and, uh, so I follow more along those lines and then I'll uh, be doing a 
pretty interesting um, psychedelic called Iboga, and I think I might have mentioned it in this in this episode with Tracy, um, but I'm going to go to a center in Mexico and do Iboga. Um, and if for whatever reason you're curious, go to the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance. Uh, you can search for Google to understand more about it. Um, it's very uh, intense, so it's uh, I'm I'm not an addict, but most people use it to uh, go get off of heroin withdrawal free. Um, and it interrupts the withdrawal cycle, which is amazing. Um, I have, I'm doing it for more personal development reasons. Uh, but yeah, if you're curious, just go find Ibogaine Global Therapy Alliance, um, and you can find out more. Wish me luck on my trip, and have a great day.